1: My name is Michael Agus. I'm Division Chief of the Division of Medical Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital. Joining me today is Dr. Kusum Menon. Dr. Menon is a senior scientist as well as physician in the Division of Critical Care at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. She is a professor in the Department of Pediatrics and the School of Epidemiology and Public Health at the University of Ottawa. Today, we will be discussing corticosteroids and septic shock. Dr. Menon, welcome. Thank you for having me. Can you start us off with some introductory remarks about septic shock in children?
2: Absolutely. As you know, Michael, septic shock is a serious problem in children worldwide. There are over 72,000 hospitalizations per year in the United States alone and more than 24 million cases worldwide. Approximately 4,000 children die in the United States, and we estimate over 3 million worldwide, although it's hard to know the exact numbers. The median hospital length of stay is over two weeks and unknown worldwide, and the median ICU length of stay five days. Costs in the United States for sepsis in children approach almost $5 billion per year. And perhaps most importantly, Dr. Ron Daniels of the Global Sepsis Alliance has stated that deaths from sepsis outnumber those from cancer in children. I think what's also really important is that in survivors, 17 to 31% of survivors exhibit new moderate to severe functional disability compared to baseline. They have decreased academic performance and memory, 21% higher rate of post-traumatic stress disorder after PICU discharge compared to children discharged from the general ward, suggesting that there's something very specific to the septic shock process. And at 1 and 12 months following PICU admission, 50 and 35 percent of surviving patients have not regained their health-related quality of life, which is really quite devastating for families.
1: Can you take us through a case of a child with sepsis to explain how this would play out in a typical pediatric ICU? And as you explain, can you describe what treatment options a well-resourced team in 2020 would have to choose from?
2: So we'd like to start with a clinical case, and the one I like to think about is a 14-year-old boy with a suspected case of septic shock who's given antibiotics. He's received 100 cc's per kilo of normal saline, and he's on 0.1 micrograms per kilo per minute of epinephrine and 0.1 micrograms per kilo per minute of norepinephrine to support his blood pressure. Despite this, his blood pressure is still 74 over 28, so he's hypotensive, and has a heart rate of 140 beats per minute, which is very tachycardic for age. So the question then is, now what? Well, as we know, treatment of septic shock consists of two basic premises, goal-directed fluid resuscitation, colloids or crystalloids, and broad-spectrum antibiotics, ideally within an hour of diagnosis or as soon as possible. But then, what next? Trials in the past looking at activated protein C, which showed so much promise, have shown potential harm. Inhaled nitric oxide, there is no evidence for this, and it is very expensive. Intravenous immunoglobulin has shown limited applicability in some specific cases of septic shock, but there's contradictory evidence, and it's very expensive. Extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. It's definitely used as a rescue therapy for septic shock, but it's resource-intensive, has limited availability, and is not without its own risks and complications. Other therapies that are being investigated right now include vitamin C, thiamine, heparin, and perhaps in the future, these might become more broadly available and used. But then that leads to, what about hydrocortisone? I think the thing that's so remarkable about hydrocortisone is that it's been around for a long time and was patented in 1936. It's very widely available. And interestingly, it's on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines and costs less than $5 a day for a 10 kilogram child, making it actually practical in most parts of the world. Why do we think that it matters? I think because we all know that there are hemodynamic effects from cortisol. If we look at the effects of cortisol given in the intensive care unit, we know that it has several effects, including regulation of glucose metabolism, increased protein breakdown, increased lipolysis, regulation of glucose availability, anti-inflammatory properties, and stimulating release of polymorphonuclear white cells. But most importantly for intensivists and for septic shock, it enhances myocardial contractility, vascular smooth muscle tone, and decreases capillary permeability. If we look at those mechanisms in a bit more detail, we know that cortisol can augment the sensitivity and number of beta-adrenergic receptors in the heart, leading to increased contractility and rate. It increases calcium and sodium uptake in arterial smooth muscle, leading to vasoconstriction and an increase in blood pressure. It inhibits cytokine-inducible form of nitric oxide synthetase preventing vasodilation and thereby stabilizing blood pressure, inhibits cytokine release, which prevents vasodilation and therefore stabilizes blood pressure as well, and finally it stimulates intracellular adhesion factor production from vascular smooth muscle, which prevents capillary leak and increases intravascular volume. Because of this physiologic premise that hydrocortisone can increase blood pressure, when you ask physicians across countries what they actually do, you find that 90% of physicians will give hydrocortisone to patients requiring fluid resuscitation and two or more inotropes. Now, keep in mind, this is older data from 2013, but there certainly is a belief out there that hydrocortisone can help the hypotension seen in septic shock.
1: And wouldn't you say, based on the, the data that you've just shown, that hydrocortisone will raise blood pressure in almost any clinical scenario.
2: Absolutely, and we know from the physiology that even in healthy volunteers, hydrocortisone administration can result in increased blood pressure.
1: So you're painting a picture that puts hydrocortisone pretty squarely in the historical arsenal for sepsis. Can you tell us how that came to be and whether it still makes sense today?
2: Yeah, it's actually a bit of an interesting story, Michael. When you look at where it started, Eustatius in 1552 actually showed the presence of glands above the kidney, and that was the first description in history of adrenal glands. It was then several hundred years later that Addison, for which the disease is now named, described 12 patients who died of chronic suprarenal failure. Then, 40 years later, Volcker actually described the first connection between adrenal disease and specifically adrenal hemorrhage leading to cardiovascular collapse. Then, as we all know, the famous duo of Waterhouse and Friedrichsen described the syndrome by which adrenal hemorrhage bilaterally um, resulted in cardiovascular collapse. Volker um, was the first one to actually describe it, but somehow Waterhouse and Friedrichsen are credited with the discovery. So when you then continue the story after the discovery of the adrenal gland and cardiovascular collapse... Over the next few decades, people started to investigate the relationship of the whole axis and discovered that cortical stimulation, whether it be from injury or stress or fright, resulted in stimulation of corticotropin-releasing hormone from the hypothalamus, which then stimulated the anterior pituitary to secrete adrenocorticotropic hormone, which stimulated the adrenal cortex to produce cortisol, which then had effects at the tissue level. Cortisol then had a feedback inhibition effect on the anterior pituitary and the hypothalamus. And for many years, that was the level of understanding of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. However, we know in the last couple of decades that this is actually a much more complicated relationship and that there are many levels of both stimulation and inhibition on the axis. Specific to ICU and things that we need to remember that corticosteroids, opioids, benzodiazepines, and antidepressants, which are very common in our patient population, all result in inhibition of the hypothalamus. Furthermore, cytokines can both stimulate as well as inhibit the HPA axis, and sometimes in a very unpredictable fashion. The adrenal gland itself is inhibited by many different medications, most common of which are fluconazole and atomidate. We then know that other medications such as phenytoin and phenobarb can also Increased metabolism resulting in decreased available cortisol, making the axis much more complicated than we originally imagined. What then happens is it's not only a matter of producing cortisol, cortisol actually has to be delivered to the tissues that are going to use it. And we know now that 80% of cortisol is bound to cortisol binding globulin in the serum, 15% to albumin, and only 5% exists as free cortisol, which is the biologically active version of the hormone. Furthermore, the relative amount of binding to both cortisol binding globulin and albumin is very unpredictable and is affected by chronic illness, nutritional status, et cetera, making it even more difficult to predict how much free cortisol you're going to have in the serum. Once cortisol actually gets to the cells, it has to bind to a hormone receptor complex And then be moved into the nucleus where DNA is transcribed into mRNA, which then eventually is translated into a new protein, which then actually has a physiologic effect. So there are many steps to the cortisol being produced and actually having its physiologic effect. So what happens normally when we're stressed is that we increase our production of cortisol. So if we see a bear in our backyard, we're going to have increase in our ACTH production, decreased extraction from blood, relative resistance to feedback at the pituitary level resulting in more cortisol, reduced hepatic degradation as that's the normal way in which cortisol is broken down in the body. We have a shift in adrenal steroid synthesis away from androgens and mineralocorticoids to produce more corticosteroids. Non-ACTH-driven pathways, such as cytokines, also produce more cortisol, and we get demargination of free cortisol from cortisol-binding globulin, resulting in more free cortisol.
1: If there's a bear in our backyard, probably the first time we see it, we do make ACTH and then cortisol. What happens the second, third, and 20th time we see, given that it's the identical stimulus? Do we have the same response?
2: That's a great question, Michael. And there's good literature actually showing that maybe not with the bear, but with other stressors, um, we don't actually have the same response, that the response definitely becomes attenuated. It's in a very small percentage of the population that the response doesn't attenuate. And those people are people with chronic anxiety and other disorders. But you're right, you won't see the same response with time. And that sort of leads us to, to the complicated question of what happens to the response in septic shock. We know that the response is altered and in fact is dysfunctional. So the inhibition of ACTH and CRF production by cytokines occurs rather than stimulation. We can have destruction of the pituitary or hypothalamus by ischemia or infarction. As we talked about previously, you get blockage of corticosteroid synthesis by drugs such as Atomidate and Ketoconazole, destruction of the adrenal gland by ischemia, hypoxia or hemorrhage as was described by Waterhouse and Friedrichsen. And I think that's the one that we always worry about, especially in our our severely ill septic shock patients. Reduced secretory reserve, increased metabolism of cortisol, again by commonly used medications in the ICU decrease in the number or affinity of glucocorticoid receptors, and genetic differences in glucocorticoid receptor signaling. And finally, we get decreased demargination of cortisol from cortisol-binding globulin resulting in less free cortisol for the effect that we need to see.
1: You've articulated a lot of reasons why adrenal function might be compromised in septic shock. Why don't we just measure cortisol levels? And what about stimulated cortisol levels as in an ACTH stimulation test? And my favorite question, what should the cortisol level be in a given sick child? And what about in a sick child on pressors or on ECMO?
2: Great questions, Michael. I'm glad you asked. Um, And I think the short answer is we really don't know what the right level should be. But I think in order to understand that, we should look at it in a little bit more detail. So when you look at all of the mechanisms that we've just talked about and try and think through what would happen to the cortisol level in those particular mechanisms, you can see from that they can actually vary considerably. So if you think about if you inhibit ACTH production, you're going to have a drop in your cortisol and a drop in your ACTH. If you destroy the pituitary hypothalamus, the same thing is going to happen. But now think about what would happen if you blocked corticosteroid synthesis say using Atomidate or ketoconazole, your cortisol level is going to drop, but your ACTH level would go up. If you destroy the adrenal glands, such as in Waterhouse Friedrichsen, same thing is going to happen. You're going to drop your cortisol level and increase ACTH production. Same thing would happen with a reduced secretory reserve, increased metabolism of cortisol, or decreased demargination of cortisol from corticotropin or from CBG or albumin. Then now, if you think about, what about the end organ, the tissues? If you decrease the number or affinity of glucocorticoid receptors, you're going to actually increase your cortisol, and you're going to increase your ACTH in an effort to actually overcome the decreased affinity of the receptors. Genetic differences in glucocorticoid receptor signaling, you may result in a decrease or increase of cortisol and a subsequent increase in your ACTH. So as you can see, depending on the mechanism, you're going to have different effects on your cortisol level, making it highly unpredictable. And what makes it more complicated is that many of these mechanisms may be occurring in the same patient, therefore resulting in a completely unpredictable cortisol level.
1: And what about going the other way around? If we have a given cortisol level, can we infer the severity of illness that caused that level? Or can we uh, interpret whether or not that level is sufficient for a given clinical scenario?
2: Again, we we think we should be able to. It's It would seem to make sense that the sicker you are, the higher your cortisol. Or if we think that the adrenal axis is dysfunctional, the sicker you are, the lower your cortisol level should be. But in fact, when we look at the literature, that doesn't seem to be the case. So if we look at a group of 32 children with septic shock who had a medium prism score of 9, which is quite high for, for ICU patients, we have found that the actual cortisol levels are very widely distributed. They can vary anywhere from less than 5 micrograms to deciliter to between 36 to 90 micrograms per deciliter. Similarly, the ACTH levels could be low, normal, or high. And in fact, in this cohort of children where only one of the 32 patients actually died, that patient had a cortisol level of 58, which doesn't fit with our impression that the dysfunctional axis should result in a low cortisol level. If we look at the number of patients who had baseline cortisol levels less than 5, which would be considered very low in an outpatient who had adrenal testing, there were 4 patients who fit this category. But all four patients actually did very well when you looked at their outcomes. They didn't have a higher need for vasopressors. They didn't stay in the ICU longer. Now, admittedly, this was a small sample. But it's still suggestive that cortisol levels may not correlate with the outcomes that we're interested in assessing. If you kind of look at it sort of more um, graphically, you can see that cortisol levels actually in the small cohort were very normally distributed that there were patients who had low levels, but there were a significant number of patients who had high levels of cortisol. And again, these did not correlate with clinically significant outcomes. And I think what is reflected in the literature is that there's a lot of confusion about what the right definition should be. Definitions have included an increment less than 7 or 9, a peak less than 14, and or an increment less than 9, peak less than 18 peak less than 18 and or increment less than 7 or 9, peak less than 25 and or an increment less than 9. And then some people have just defined it using peaks, greater than 18, greater than 21.7, or greater than 35. So again, no consistency. Some of these studies have tried to correlate their definition with a clinically significant outcome, but many of them have done so, which doesn't help us because we still don't know which definition we should be picking. So then, if we think about not being able to do testing, we can't look at cortisol levels. What about the evidence?
1: You've demonstrated that cortisol levels and septic shock are difficult to interpret even after ACTH stimulation. What is the evidence for or against simply treating empirically?
2: Well, I'm glad you asked that question, Michael. As you can see, there really isn't very much evidence in the pediatric literature There are a significant number of adult studies, which we'll talk about a bit later, maybe. But in children, there are very few, and there's no level one evidence, most importantly. There are nine prospective comparative studies or low-quality RCTs, and there are two meta-analyses of level two studies with inconsistent results. If we actually consider the pediatric studies that are out there, there are only four pediatric randomized control trials, all of which are small-sized, and in total looked at only 255 patients. The majority of the studies were retrospective cohort studies, and the majority of studies did not support benefit, and a significant number, I think seven of them, support suggested harm, which gives us some real food for thought. If we look more closely at the studies that actually supported benefit, as we talked about earlier, hydrocortisone increases blood pressure in all patients and all healthy volunteers, so it has a physiologic effect, but without necessarily affecting longer-term outcomes. And the two studies support this. One showed that there was a shorter shock reversal time in patients receiving corticosteroids at the start of treatment compared to those who received it later. And another one showed a decrease in median dopamine dose and median dose of norepinephrine at four hours. But neither study showed any longer term benefits or other clinically significant outcomes.
1: And just to be clear, is it your opinion that a, an improvement in blood pressure due to treatment with hydrocortisone is an indication of adrenal insufficiency that is now treated? Or is it an indication that that hydrocortisone is having its physiologic effect?
2: Really, if we go by the literature, it's an indication that it's having its physiologic effect. And there is no evidence to suggest that those patients have adrenal insufficiency, as we know that patients who are healthy or are healthy volunteers will get a rise in their blood pressure as well. So that doesn't mean that they're adrenally insufficient. It's kind of like giving somebody epinephrine. Epinephrine will raise most people's blood pressure, but it doesn't mean that they needed the epinephrine. We've sort of talked about that blood pressure maybe isn't a real benefit from hydrocortisone, specifically in septic shock. But what about other potential benefits? Well, there is some early work looking at biomarker-specific data, suggesting that patients with particular biomarkers may actually benefit. Dr. Hector Wong out of Cincinnati is looking at Persevere, which is a biomarker-based stratification tool used to estimate 28-day mortality risk in children with septic shock. And these biomarkers are serum proteins measured within 24 hours of septic shock diagnosis, some of which include chemokine, ligane-3, interleukin-8, heat shock protein, granzyme-B, and matrix metallopeptidase-8, amongst many others. What he's shown is that corticosteroids in endotype B and intermediate to high persevere risk show a tenfold reduction in risk of a complicated course. And he defines complicated course as a composite of organ failure and mortality. It's very preliminary work, but it's very interesting and may show as a way forward in the future.
1: So if I'm hearing you correctly, that suggests that there's a subset of patients that may derive significant benefit from corticosteroid treatment and septic shock.
2: That is the hope, and certainly that is the future. We don't have a way of running that right now, but certainly that is something in the future, that there is a subgroup of patients that may benefit. We just don't know which ones they are yet. Of course, when you talk about benefits, then you have to talk about the risks as well. And unfortunately, there are several studies, albeit retrospective, showing the risks of corticosteroids and pediatric septic shock. These include being an independent predictor of mortality, greater organ failure, higher mortality, and a greater requirement for vasoactive medications, repression of genes corresponding to adaptive immunities, so a susceptibility to secondary infections, more time on vasoactive infusions, which corresponds with which is kind of counterintuitive because we just said that hydrocortisone increases your blood pressure. And maybe this is a reflection of sicker patients receiving hydrocortisone and a higher incidence of new positive cultures, greater PICU and hospital length of stay, and less ventilator-free days. So certainly some food for thought. In addition, Dr. Hector Wang's group has also shown that there may be some patients that are at higher risk of side effects from corticosteroids. He has used endotyping to to try and derive which of these patients might fit into this category. So endotypes are biologically defined subclasses of clinical syndromes that differentiate a heterogeneous cohort based on molecular biology. And he has classified patients based on these subclasses uh, and molecular biology into endotype A and B, and has shown that endotype A is characterized by decreased expression of genes corresponding to the glucocorticoid receptor signaling pathway. And corticosteroids were independently associated with a fourfold increase in mortality risk in endotype A patients. So again, making us think that while there may be a group of patients, a subgroup that would d- benefit from steroids, there may also be a group that may have worse outcomes with steroids. So we summarize looking at the risks and benefits of corticosteroid therapy and pediatric septic shock. Possible risks include new infections, suppression of adaptive immunity, GI bleeding, and I include GI bleeding in there because there was a systematic review many years ago that suggested an increased risk of GI bleeding with corticosteroid therapy and pediatric septic shock. The caveat being that many of the studies there included patients with dengue hemorrhagic shock, so probably not applicable to the broader group. Increased mortality and hyperglycemia, at this point, benefits decrease time on vasopressors, which as we've stated, may be a benefit, but it may just be a physiologic response to hydrocortisone.
1: And to restate Dr. Wong's data, there is a risk of increased mortality in one subgroup from having received corticosteroids, and yet there's a decreased mortality in another subgroup who got corticosteroids. So there's really evidence even from his work on both Both sides. sides.
2: Absolutely.
1: You've now shown us credible evidence that hydrocortisone may benefit children with septic shock and it may harm children with septic shock. Given compelling evidence on both sides, among those that treat pediatric septic shock with hydrocortisone, What reasons do physicians give for doing so?
2: Well, it's a good question, and it sort of comes down to the science of medicine and the art of medicine and what physicians fear. What's what's the worst possible thing? Well, I think intensivists and physicians are afraid patients will die if we don't give corticosteroids, and so I think that's the big fear. And I think what I would have them consider and think about is that Despite this fear, there's no evidence in pediatric septic shock that this is actually true. There's an increasing suggestion that corticosteroids could actually accelerate death in a subpopulation of patients, which, whom we right now cannot identify. And in fact, there's inconclusive evidence even in adults. So if you look at the adult data, because there's really no pediatric data to assess mortality, which is the biggest fear, I think, of most physicians... There are two systematic reviews that have been done recently, one in 2018 and one in 2019. The one in 2018 included 42 randomized controlled trials with over 10,000 patients, 38 of which were adults, one was a combined pediatric and adult study and three were pediatric studies. However, the pediatric studies were too small to draw any conclusive av- conclusions from. What importantly, this systematic review showed that there were no short-term mortality effects or no long-term mortality effects. So in fact, despite our belief that even in adults that there was a mortality benefit, a systematic review of 42 RCTs did not support this. It, more recently, the Cochrane Review of 61 randomized control trial and over 12,000 patients, 53 of which were adult two were pediatric and adult, and six were pediatric, suggested a slight reduction in 28-day mortality. But importantly, the upper bound of the confidence interval was 0.99, which was very close to being non-significant. But even if you believe that maybe there was a slight benefit, there was no difference in long-term mortality. So they still died, but maybe slightly later. The other thing that's important to note with this systematic review was that they included patients with pneumonia and not just septic shock, so it was perhaps a mixed effect. The other important thing, and you know, I know for most pediatricians this isn't necessarily news, but sometimes we have no choice. We have to use adult data because there just isn't pediatric data, but I think in this particular disease condition that that's a little bit dangerous because I think The adult trials are so different than the pediatric population that we have to really think about applying that data to our patient population. So if you look at the age in the four trials that are really quoted um, as being the big, monumental adult trials, ANAN in 2002, SPRUNG in 2008, FENKATACHE in 2018, and ANAN again in 2018, the range of age groups in these trials was from 60 to 66 years of age which obviously is very different than the pediatric population, which most of the studies range in age from three to nine years of age. The other interesting thing is that most of them range from 61 to 70% male, whereas in pediatric studies, for whatever reason, septic shock seems to be pretty much 50-50. The next thing that's important to note is that the comorbidities in the adult populations in these four studies are very different than our pediatric comorbidities. They included hypertension, coronary artery disease, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, liver disease. They did include some cancer patients, which is common in pediatrics as well, but the other comorbidities in pediatrics were prematurity, genetic diseases, and neuromuscular diseases. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, is the baseline mortality rate in adults ranged from 24.3% to 63%, whereas in pediatrics, it's around 5 to 10, and the average was 9%. So again, a very different patient population.
1: You've taught us a lot about the physiology of adrenal function in septic shock, measurement of that function, and about published risks and benefits to hydrocortisone therapy. Where do we go from here? How would you recommend the pediatric intensivist in 2020 should proceed?
2: I think it's an important question to answer, and I think it's important that we realize that there really isn't good evidence and that we need to look at this in a systematic way. So as you know, we are conducting a study looking at hydrocortisone in pediatric septic shock. This is an international collaboration between the United States and Canada and perhaps other countries in the future trying to look and answer this question as scientifically as we can. We plan to look at 1032 patients with suspected or confirmed infection and on greater than 2 vasoactive inotropic agents or epinephrine or norepinephrine infusions alone at greater than 0.1 mics per kilo per minute. The intervention is going to be hydrocortisone versus a comparator of placebo. And our primary outcome is the proportion of patients who die or have a greater than 25% decrease from baseline in health-related quality of life at 28 days. We anticipate that this trial will take probably five years to complete and at least 32 or more sites. In the meantime, we still have to make decisions. We still have to treat patients that are in front of us So fortunately, we have the 2020 Surviving Sepsis Guidelines that just came out recently. And I think what's important to note is they've made three important changes with regard to the recommendations on hydrocortisone use. So the first one is that they say to consider using or not using hydrocortisone for refractory shock. And this is based on the fact that hydrocortisone may produce benefit or harm, which is also important to note. And in fact, their recommendation number 45 suggests that either IV hydrocortisone or no hydrocortisone may be used if adequate fluid resuscitation and vasopressor therapy are not able to restore hemodynamic stability. And they also importantly state that this is based on weak, this is a weak recommendation based on a low quality of evidence. And I think To your earlier question about whether cortisol levels and our ACTH-stimulated cortisol levels were useful, they state that reliable cutoffs for random cortisol and ACTH-stimulated cortisol levels have not been clearly identified, so this reflects the ambiguity in the literature. The challenges relate to variability in the cortisol assay itself, as this is actually done differently across centers. Cortisol metabolism during sepsis, as we talked about earlier cortisol-binding globulin concentrations, and multiple tissue and cellular factors. So, importantly, the statement says that, therefore, use of random cortisol or stimulation tests to guide corticosteroid prescription in children with septic shock cannot be recommended at this time. So, I think it gives us a viable option to consider not administering steroids. Considering the risks and benefits, it is an option not to give steroids in septic shock.
1: So what do we do in the meantime? If we walked into the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario and found Dr. Menon taking care of a patient uh, with septic shock, what would you do? How would you think about how to treat that child before the randomized controlled trial results have been released?
0: So I think
2: for me, Michael, when I started this journey, I would have said, that's easy, just give them steroids. But I think over the past 20 years, looking at the literature, studying this, considering what we have learned about the axis, I actually think now that my tendency is to really seriously consider that corticosteroids could be harming my patient, which is not something I would have thought about in the earlier days. So for me now, it's up to the patient to prove to me that they actually need corticosteroids. So I would do a risk assessment, trying to think about what is the pretest probability that this patient in front of me has a reason that they really need steroids? So have they been on long-term corticosteroids, high dose or long-term? Do they have known hypothalamic, pituitary, or adrenal disease that could affect their cortisol levels or function? Have they been given etomidate or ketoconazole? So do they have a risk factor that would make them at high risk for true adrenal insufficiency? If so, I would then conduct low-dose ACTH stimulation testing to actually measure cortisol and then do a post-ACTH stimulation level. If that random level was less than 5 in this patient with known or highly suspected risk factors for adrenal dysfunction, if it was less than 5 or they had an increment less than 7 micrograms per deciliter and a peak less than 18 micrograms per deciliter, then I would consider treating them with 50 milligrams per meter squared of hydrocortisone. And I would wean it off as soon as the anotropic support
1: was, was being weaned. But for a similar patient who did not have uh, any prior risk factors, and your, your pretest probability was low, you would still test or you would defer testing and just continue to treat without hydrocortisone?
2: If they had no risk factors, I would not test them for adrenal dysfunction because I would need to have a high pretest probability to do the testing and I would not treat them with hydrocortisone. I think the case that sort of really sticks out in my mind is a case of a child that we actually ended up putting on, on ECMO for septic shock and ended up treating with hydrocortisone. The patient ended up dying and I've always asked myself, I, I've sort of initially went between, well, I did everything for the patient by giving them steroids, and that made me feel better. But now I look at that, and I actually wonder, did I accelerate their death by giving them steroids? And the bottom line is, I don't know the answer to that. And I think, for me, that the, the way forward is first, do no harm. And because I can't be sure that I'm not doing harm in that previously healthy, no risk factor patient, I I would not give steroids. I think in the future, in the ideal world, it would be great to be able to target patients. This would be the dream world where the current traditional approach is you have a patient come in, they get hydrocortisone. Some patients might benefit. Some patients might have no benefit, but not suffer any harm. And some patients might actually have adverse events, and we just accept that. That's the cost of having a few benefit. But in the future, I think a precision medicine approach would be to have a patient come in, you endotype them and measure persevere biomarkers, and perhaps other biomarkers. We don't know what those might be in the future. You classify them into low-risk, high-risk, endotypes, perhaps a combination of the two, and then we actually have a tailored approach whereby We identify certain patients, it's just not needing hydrocortisone. They're going to do well, they don't need it. We have another group where they're going to have a better outcome if you give them hydrocortisone. And then we have a group where we don't want to give them hydrocortisone because they're going to have a worse outcome. But we can tailor that using biomarkers and perhaps risk stratification. And I think that's the future. And hopefully in 5 to 10 years, we'll be there. So in the meantime, I think... I would summarize by saying there's no clear evidence for corticosteroids and septic shock in children. Some emerging evidence suggests that steroids and septic shock may actually worsen outcomes in at least some children. And I think given that there's no clear evidence for steroid use and maybe some suggestion of harm, I think it's probably worth considering the principle of first do no harm pending a trial. And I think the other thing that's important to me is to start thinking about trying to obtain pediatric-specific data so that we're not always having to rely on adult data. And I think doing studies like this and running trials where we don't know the answer to questions convinces clinicians, funding agencies, and the general public that pediatric-specific data is actually important. And so, you know, I think this is an exciting time for this question. I think we're poised to perhaps answer this question And hopefully in five to 10 years, we can actually have a tailored approach to using corticosteroids and septic shock.
1: Is it fair to say that uh, children deserve their own studies?
2: Absolutely.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Menon. This was a wonderful talk and conversation and review of the available data. Uh, And I'm grateful to you and to all of us who are participating in this trial Uh, that uh, we're going to generate that pediatric-specific data. Uh, Thank you for your research, your leadership, and your uh, instruction of all of us to make sure that we're all aware of the most current data.
2: Well, thank you for having me, Michael. As you know, I love talking about corticosteroids and septic shock,
0: and thank you for the opportunity to share my passion with the world.